Welcome back to another edition of the Department of Conversation brought to you by Stratus, the most affordable alternative to smoking. It's a hassle-free, reliable, compact pod kit. It includes a little bit of nicotine to help people stave away the cravings of cigarettes and it enables you to transition away from cigarettes to a better choice. Find out more about them at Vaporium.nz. Well, today is the 100th Department of Conversation the 100th we are 100 episodes old and i was going to try and get some big flash celebrity person and try and make a big noise and song and dance about it and say woohoo we're at 100 we're at 100 which i'm kind of doing anyway because it's pretty exciting to be here but the other day i had a friend of mine uh connect with me and say she has uh, a doctor Dr. Mahdiz Azamandi, who is a, a scholar and an academic, got her PhD from Otago University uh, in racism and anti-racism. Uh, she was born in Iran. She was raised in Germany. She spent some time living in Spain. She resides now in New Zealand, but has also spent some time teaching in a conservative state in America. And she has just penned a piece uh, for New Zealanders to read called Dear New Zealand, Why Solidarity, Anti-Racism and Black Lives Matter. Um, And I wanted to talk to her like you would not believe. So I am honoured that uh, Mahdi's decided to join us and spend some time with us for our 100th episode. And this is something that I think an episode that everyone should listen to. I know that sounds a bit weird because as a podcaster, you want everyone to listen to your content. But I feel like if I can be so humble to take a step back from this one and go, this one's not about me or not about my podcast. This is really genuinely about the content and I feel the importance of the content. So uh, a, a, a review, if you listen to this on iTunes and a rating would be good, but also most importantly, a sharing of the content that Maktiz is going to share with us. Not my content, not about me this one, this is about Dr. Maktiz Azamandi and also what's happening in America with Black Lives Matter and what's happening uh, in general with racism racism around our world. Um, do I say enjoy this one? Maybe the wrong word is to say enjoy it, but it's a, it's a brilliant podcast and um, I hope you get something from it. Well, good morning. It is Sunday the 7th of June. It is just after 11 o'clock local time and I have with me Dr. Maktes Azamandi. Maktes, thank you so, so much for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to see you all the way up there in Christchurch from down here in Dunedin. How are you? Good. Kia ora. I'm actually in Tamaki Makaurau, so I'm in Auckland oh, um, okay. at the moment. So, yeah. And you're because you're teaching in in Christchurch. That's where your your position is. What are you doing up yes. in Auckland? I was in Auckland when the lockdown happened. Oh. And I, my partner lives in Auckland. I live in Christchurch. So we have this back and forth. And yeah. I was lucky, I guess, to be here when everything happened. So I've just been here till we go back on campus teaching in semester two. So I just have a couple of more weeks left in Auckland. And not that we need to get into your school life, but for those of your uh, students and school and, and university people that are watching, are you doing the same as Otago, which I think is returning back to classes as per sort of semester two? So that's sort of when things are returning to normal? 
so I don't want to repeat something that's not fully accurate. My understanding is that teaching will res like resume on campus once we're in level one and only for classes that cannot resort to online teaching for labs, very small classes, et cetera. Those might be on campus even during level two. But from what it looks like, um, I think we're all expecting to be back in, in the classroom by semester two. This um, lockdown and this... Um this life under pandemic has been crazy, but obviously not to minimize and have a terrible segue, the the conversation around what's been going on with, um, in the U S has been pretty, pretty nutso as well. Um, I was, I thought what we might do to start with, uh, the reason we're talking to you, uh, we've been connected through a mutual friend is you have written a piece and let me just bring it up here. Uh, which is, you know, what part of me, and I know that you would, the possibility of this being um, broadcast, sorry, broadcast is the wrong word, like in major news outlets, hasn't happened because it's so, because uh, it's long, one of the reasons. And I actually am quite, quite happy about that because it means that nothing has to be taken away from it. So you wrote a piece called Dear New Zealand, Why Solidarity, Anti Racism, and Black Lives Matter. Um, a friend of mine who was a mutual friend of yours connected us uh, and said this would be freaking awesome to talk about. And I 100% um, agree. Because as we look right now all over the world, uh, as we speak, there are um, still and continued uh, protests uh, going on, marches, demonstrations. Uh, this is in Washington, just down the road from uh, the White House. Uh, in uh, Los, I think this is uh, a little while ago, but this is the Golden Gate Bridge in uh, San Francisco, obviously, where there are marches going on. And look, I could I could have gone through before we got together and pulled out fifty different live streams of where things are happening all over the U.S. and all over the world, including the protests we've had here in New Zealand. Um, and it just seemed like such a good opportunity to have a. A, a chat with you and a talk to you about what's going on and you as an academic academic and a scholar uh, who works in this area who studied in this area uh, is a perfect time to talk about what's going on yeah it's it's I think for me this is part of my everyday so I sometimes forget that not everybody is having these conversations and it always takes something really tragic and violent and visible to happen for the conversation to become public, which is somewhat unfortunate because I always say I would like to not have conversations about racism because that would mean we wouldn't need to have conversations about racism. Yeah, for sure. But I think this is a this is a really, really important moment because these protests are happening around the globe. So they're not only happening in every state in the US. There's been support, protests, vigils, smaller events in you know over 20 different countries around the world and i think that's quite significant and i you know my piece i talked about why this isn't just something that has that is about supporting people in the united states and i was driven to write this piece because i kept hearing people saying oh we're importing an american problem mm. and you know i i'm not and i'm not from new zealand i moved to this country to study and then i stayed here because my partner is from here and living with somebody who's Maori and learning about the history of this country. I'm just, my mind is blown by people who say we're importing an American problem as if racism wasn't somehow systemic to this nation. You know, I, I, I do think things look different. They're distinct in different locations and there's a peculiar nature of how anti-blackness operates, which is so important why also um, 
non-black people of color speak on this issue because it's something that we reproduce in our own communities as well. But for anybody to say, oh, wow, look how terrible things are in the US and yeah. we're so lucky over here, it's just being, I think it's just being really innocent, if not, I think just, I don't know, ignorant. I um reading your article i i think it's of i think it's the perfect time for this conversation i i hear what you say and so i I guess that's a privileged area that those of us who aren't necessarily impacted by institutional racism or or face it on a daily basis don't think about which is arrogant and and it is what it is um so for someone like me to say this is the perfect time to talk about it is because as you say it's highlighted for a reason for people who have to deal with this every day maybe every day is a good day to talk about it to talk about the effects of it and to talk about uh, what to do about it. Um, but one of the things that's, that particularly struck me with your piece uh, that you wrote, and if people want to see it, it's on our Facebook page. So if you just head to facebook.com forward slash D-O-C-N-Z, there is a link to it there. But was was when you said, um, and I'm going to read a bit of it and I hope that's okay with you, I'm not breaking your copyright. When you were talking about what you've done as a scholar and who you are and what you've studied in racism and anti-racism, the part where you then said quite near the beginning, so over the past few days, my social media inbox was filled with questions from well-meaning white friends who want to know what's going on in the US. So I'd like to share some thoughts for all of you who might share these questions, particularly from a New Zealand context. And the one that jumped out at me was the question, why do you say all our black lives matter when all lives matter? And... I I typically don't get involved in these conversations online a lot because I, it's like although I do enjoy a good ruck, you know, in a conversation, like I and I'll have on the flat earthers to talk about it. Although we know that the earth is not flat, it's enjoyable. It's a, it's a you know it's a banter. When it comes to more serious issues that really do impact people day to day in a well in a dangerous and serious way, I I. I think making a debate into a debate sometimes is dangerous because that implies there is another side. But I have to say for this one, I have been seeing some of these people put comments out. A friend of mine who has a Jamaican wife and lives in Tauranga uh, put up a, a – he's an artist and he wrote he, – he, I think he drew a piece. It might have been charcoal on, on, on white, um, which said Black Lives Matter. And the very first response, the very first response from someone who knew him obviously because he connected on Facebook was White Lives Matter too. Um, the like the very first response, and I went, "Fuck me!" You know, it's the it's not even, it's 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 the very first response. It really, 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 really got me that one, and probably I probably I probably was a bit bully boyish in that conversation, but for some reason that was that was the one that got me. And so this is happening everywhere. White lives matter. All lives matter. You know, um, all uh, all minorities matter. This sort of thing. So I just, I, I mean, I'm, I said to someone yesterday, hopefully, I'm talking a lot at the moment, hopefully when you listen to the podcast tomorrow, I, I'll just sit back and listen. You won't hear my voice very much at all because I'm wanting to figure it out and learn about it as well because I'm, I'm at a loss as to what's going on. I think the, the reason I wrote this piece is I come from a very privileged background in the sense that I, for the last decade, for sure, have surrounded myself with people who all do really incredible work. And I, a lot of my friends are academic activists, scholars who are involved in knowledge production, but are also doing a ton of work in the community. I moved to New Zealand from Berlin, where I 
was really lucky to have a sense of community of people who were really strongly involved in organizing around issues, particularly for queer people of color, which was, you know, at the intersections of various issues. So then I came here and you don't, of course, bring your bubble with you as you mm. as you start a new life somewhere else. And I have now more friends that aren't necessarily in the same at the same stage in their journey as maybe I was when I was still living in, in Europe. So these questions were also very new to me too. And I don't actually engage in Facebook debate because I think it's very draining and I'm actually no longer on Facebook because I, I just found it was too consuming of my energy. Yeah, right. Um, but Smart. I particularly <laughs> wrote this piece because I could see some of the questions that came are people who are in close proximity to me and who do not mean harm, which I think is really hard when you, you know, you might be reproducing harm and kind of, I know you're not meaning. Yeah. So I wasn't trying to say, why shouldn't you say all lives matter? I wanted to outline what that statement does, right? There's a famous um, Afro-Portuguese scholar who's based in, in Berlin and she said into a crowd once, just, um, telling a story about one of her classroom settings and how somebody was correcting her in the classroom. And she used the question, what's the purpose of that question? Mm. And I've taken that on. And if any of my students mm. are listening, they will, they will know how often in the classroom <laughs> I pause a conversation. I say, what is the purpose of that comment? Yeah. What's the purpose of your question? Because it's not the question that's the problem. Is that we don't understand what it does. And what it does is it dislocates the conversation. It wants to dismiss the pain. It wants to shift our focus away onto something else. Right. And, you know, having to break it down and bring people a really like easy metaphor is hard. You know, it's really, really hard to bring everyday metaphors because I have to resort to comparing people to things, you know, and that's, yeah, yeah, and that's, yeah. and that's a hard process. It's really exhausting. You know, how do you write to convince people of the benign yet really extreme violence that happens on the everyday so that it can result in the exceptional extreme that we're now seeing um, with police brutality. You know, I was, I was really struggling with some of the metaphors that I was developing and I had a friend help me out and she's like, well, just go a little bit further. It might help people mm. understand. And I was talking to another friend and I said, but I don't want to compare people to things, you know? Um, and that's, I think that's a hard line for us as people who want to do the educational work, but who are also involved in the work on the ground, you know, like it's, it's this constant navigation right. of who's our audience and why do we do what we do? And why do we have to consistently say, actually we're people, you know? I think I think what I hear you saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is as a scholar, you're sort of responsible for educating young minds, and you may have to break things down in a way, like with metaphors, etc. That that does do that. But as an and you've identified yourself in, in much of your writing stuff as an activist, that people are real and they're <laughs> and they're unique and individual. So there's that conflict there. Um, I think you, you've done it beautifully in your piece, which I think we'll get to shortly. And you know what I'm talking about. And those that have read it when I talk about the dishwasher, I love it. It's absolutely perfect. Um, the example I've given often is talking about, uh, well, it's a silly example, but like fundraising for, for cancer. You know, when you fundraise for breast cancer, you're not going, screw you, bowel, uh, bowel cancer. You suck. I, you, you have no value. You're going, actually, the reason you're fundraising for breast cancer is at that time, at that place, there's a reason to do it. 
you know, wh- whatever it is. It doesn't mean F you to throat cancer or to whatever else, whatever the thing is. It's just lifting up this particular issue for a for a particular time. Um, and that's the example I've always sort of given to the Black Lives Matter. There's a there's a reason to lift it up. The the example as well, which we'll show as we go through of the the cartoonist doing the two houses on fire. I think that's that's genius as well. And the thing that I struggled with, even with that, the, I, I, let me let me say this: I haven't been a keyboard warrior. This is the same the same posts that I've been been on. Um, when someone saw that cartoon, because I put that up on this post I was talking about on, of a friend's page, they started trying to justify the kinds of houses they were. And they were like, well, one's probably an expensive batch and one's probably a shack. And I'm like, well, no, the, you, you look at, they're on the same street. They're in the same, they actually, if you look at it, what the cartoonist has done, has got the same windows in the same place. The houses are literally identical. Actually, you know, I, 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 it's ridiculous me not to show it now if people haven't seen it. The, the houses are literally identical, and one's on fire, yet the neighbourhood is arguing about, um, about, you know, all, all houses matter. You can see up in this top corner, the houses are literally identical. The doors are in the same place. The windows are in. The, there's, there's no differences, and I, and I. I got really frustrated because this person was saying we can't assume that they're the same house. One might be expensive. One might not be. Like one might be a shack. And I'm like, no. The, People seem well, to try and square the circle on this conversation. I think what I should add, and I feel I wish I had added that, is in my metaphor and in that cartoon, what we forget is that this oppression isn't like it's not this just this temporary moment. It's five hundred years old, yeah. right? Um, well, if we look at four hundred years, if we look at the at the context in the U.S., and these debates just demonstrate for me that people have a very, very, very strong internalized understanding of the people who are worthy and those who are unworthy, right? Of in this particular case to be protected or not to be killed by the police or to be treated fairly in front of a judge Mm. or, you know, in the most benign example to be able to walk down the street and not have something, you know, yelled at them or a teacher make a derogatory or demeaning comment in the classroom, right? These are all questions about who deserves, you know, who's deserving and who's not deserving. And I think we can see that in the in the coverage, particularly around media coverage of the the people who've been killed at the hands of police. When people say, "Oh, well, they had a criminal record," or "They were we found, I don't know, that smoked weed in the last God knows when," you know, like it's and you're like none of that matters none of that should matter because you should not be killed for any of those reasons and mm. and we know that we don't randomly kill people that we can't cope with i saw something really interesting the other day on one of the signs at one of the u.s protests um and it was in response to people saying well the u.s the police has to use force because they deal with people who might be mentally disturbed it said and i said it is in, in quotation marks or people who have substance abuse issues or who are drunk um, and, and the sign said nurses still deal with people who are yeah. drunk or have substance abuse issues every day, and we never hear a story of a nurse choking somebody to death. Yeah. Right? Um, we know we're fully capable. We're fully capable of, even in, in a situation of crime, in a situation of, you know, where it, it's unclear what, you know, what's going on, to approach people and hold people accountable without resorting to lethal violence you know or violence i mean it doesn't have to just end in death for us to react completely 
Um, I, and, and just for people who don't know, I mean, the the protests that are still going on around the world at the moment, back to Washington, D.C. there, um, George Floyd, uh, I'm going to say is accused of, I don't know if, if it's still alleged or not yet, but of passing a, a $20 bill that was counterfeit. I mean, you don't kill. I mean, you don't kill someone for lots of reasons, if any reasons. But you certainly don't kill someone for committing such a minor infraction and, and treat them that way. Um, what what I thought we could do, although the conversation has already got going, is if we took a half step backwards and maybe talked about what is racism, like what actually is it? Because I, I guess even I, I struggle with that idea because I think about racism and I think about primarily the sort of dictionary definition which is I am superior to you because of the color of my skin and when you apply that filter to it a lot of the stuff out there that I think society would accuse of being racist maybe is not so much unless you understand the context of what that means because I think that um I don't know I guess I was going to say I think that words like you're a racist or you're a Nazi and stuff get thrown around a lot at the moment and if you run it through the filter of, I don't think my race is superior to yours, then they're wrong. But if you run it through the filter of some of the things you've written about, about institutional racism, then maybe they're right. So maybe we should take a step, half step back uh, and just get you to talk to us. I mean, it's what your dissertation was in, in racism and anti-racism. Um, maybe we should take a half step back and have you explain to us um, from an academic and scholarly point of view, what, what is racism? Yeah, I think there is this this dictionary definition is one that often gets in the way for us to get the work done. I think, yes, of course, it is racist if you come out and say, I think my race is superior to yours and therefore you should have less or you should have um, something different, you know, like being segregated or not being allowed to live. That's obviously very clearly a form of racism, but mm -hmm. I think we need to look at it in its historical continuity so to see in history, when we had very clear overt examples of, of racism, what did they look like and what were the particular logics that they had in common, right? So having lived in different countries, and I grew up in Germany, I think we in Germany have a very clear understanding what racism is. It's very confined to a particular period in our time and our history. Yeah. Um, and I think Germany has similar struggles of trying to understand why suddenly we need to talk about all these other forms of racism that also are very prevalent um, in European countries. So what I look like to look at it is how, how do we get to the point that we make other humans um, less human in the eyes of the majority? Right. And that is, you know, in, in academic language, we call that racialization, mm -hmm. right? Like white people are racialized white and black people are racialized black. So like this is a process of making meaningful these categories that we put on people. Because we can have categories that don't indicate a hierarchy, right? Like we use categories. I'm not saying, you know, all categories are bad, but when you use a category to distinguish yourself from somebody else in order mm -hmm. to make them less than you um, in the in the context of racism, we do that with the category of race and the process is considered racialization and racialization has changed over time. We know certain groups, depending on context, move from one category to the other. And it's never, it's never been a strict line between what this is and that is. This is why these systems that were very overtly racist, like apartheid, like the Nazi system, like segregation, um, they had to create these constant laws that they had to uphold. 
right? And you make, for every law that you made, you made exceptions to that law. So we know based on these exceptions that these categories were very fluid and you can right. go in and out of some of them. Um, there was differences between different groups again. So again, if you look at apartheid, there was, you know, a whole category of the different non-whites people and what they could and what they couldn't do. Um, and we see something similar in, in New Zealand of how that, how colonization brought these ideas to this context and used it um, on the indigenous population. Mm -hmm. And then of course, as you know, time progressed also on other populations that then came into this country afterwards. Um, so I think those are for me really important considerations to have. So when people say racism is only if you declare yourself a white supremacist mm -hmm. or you declare yourself a Nazi and you just want to beat people up in the street. And I said, well, if that was the definition then very few people would come forward and actually own up to this. Yeah. Um, but it would also always require us that the people have to self-identify. Um, so they have to self-identify as a full-fledged racist versus a non-full-fledged racist, whatever that might look like. Um, and that's really also the question around intent and impact. Yeah. I think while the questions around what does it mean to be a racist might, you know, require a lot more time to unpack, what is really easy to unpack and what's really easy to assess is what is the societal impact, right? And again, in this country, there's evidence after evidence and report and research and historical accounts um, of how Maori have been dispossessed and marginalized and continue, continue to be discriminated against institutionally in a number of ways, right? So let's look at the impact. And we can see this impact now also with other minority um, populations. But I think in this context, it's really important to understand what's the context that we live in. This is a settler colonial context. And even people like myself and other people of color, we live on what is Maori land. So we, no matter what we do, are also complicit in that process in some ways. So I think these conversations get more complex as you move them from context to context, but it doesn't mean that they're in isolation from each other, which is why people show up for Black Lives Matter here, not mm -hmm. because we're just thinking this is an American problem, but because people are actually connecting the dots and people are looking into the history and saying, oh, here are, here's how some of this keeps going. And it's, yeah, maybe changed, some of it may be improved, but there's continuity. And this morning on, on CNN, there was a reporter reporting on some of the protest signs and she was saying that there was a middle-aged black man who was holding a sign that said i am a man that was a sign that one of his family members had been holding in one of the marches during the civil rights movement wow right so i think when people do something like that they're really going back to these histories of resistance and trying to say this is not an isolated event this is not a, a failure of the few and, you know, overall, we're doing really well. It's, by, it's, it's about saying, hey, this has been going on for a really long time. We need to do better, but we also need to acknowledge that there is historical harm. It's not just present harm. There's some real historical harm that needs to be addressed. I think the idea of contextualising things is always really important as well. I used to walk at work on Newstalk ZB. I, t I tend to bring that up every single freaking podcast. I'm not trying to brag about it. It's just it, often the context works. And we talk about, um, often on ZB, obviously, because most of the listeners are kind of 60 plus and white, there'd be complaints about treaty settlements. It would be a common conversation. But I used to joke about doing, I mean, oh, it's another night of 3M talkback, Muslims, migrants, and Maoris. That's what we're going to talk about, is it? And they'd come in and they'd talk about, you know, how that's bad and how we shouldn't be doing these settlements. 
and, and and I'd try and contextualize it for them and say, let's say that your grandfather in Ireland had a hundred thousand acre farm, and in the nineteen forties the government took it off them for the war, you know, for, to use for the war, and then never gave it back. And right now that land was worth five million, ten million, twenty million pounds. Would you want to have an aspect of that still flow through to you? And the ones that were honest would say yes. And the ones that were dishonest, the listeners that are, the call-ins, would say no. And I'd say, don't, don't talk rubbish. We all would. And contextualizing it to make it about us and trying to demonstrate how, and I know you can never compare like 400 years of slavery to an example of a farm 80 years ago, but contextualizing it to give people um, maybe more of an understanding themselves of what it might be, I think helps a lot. And I think for me, the, the, the impact versus intent that you wrote about in your piece was a way that contextualised this for me quite heavily. Um, I'd love for us to talk about the dishwasher example, because I think the dishwasher example that you get, and I won't, I won't bring up your article again, because I'd rather hear it from you, is incredible, because what I hear you saying now is a little bit about um, what is racism, and it's to do with, I'm not using your words, um, but kind of paraphrasing, sort of the uh, the oppression of, the, the casting down of the being lesser than of because of uh, a race whether it's intentional or not so even even those good people who are writing all good people the, those well-intentioned people who are writing you know all lives matter or white lives matter what they're doing is they're causing people um harm or, or, or sadness or or you know institutional racism um without the intent but it's the same impact and I look, I think for me, the, the dishwasher was... But I actually, I also think there's a degree of doubt for me if people don't know. Oh, know? really? Oh, wow. I think, Shit. When you, I, think some, I think there's obviously often people who don't understand their impact, but... And I had a different example, you know, which was about a funeral. And I took it out because I thought that's maybe, you know, like really inappropriate. But if you go to somebody's, you know, funeral... And, you know, that grandma just passed away. And, you know, you also have a grandma. You wouldn't go into, like, somebody's funeral and be like, my, but all grandmas matter, right? Um, <laughs> which, <laughs> I mean, they do. Um, yeah. And I think it's, again, again, it's what's the purpose? What is the purpose when you say this? And I want people to pause and, and think about, you know, what is this fragility? We talk about white fragility often in, in anti-racist work. And I don't, you know, there's all forms of fragility. I think there's male fragility too, when people are told about, um, you know, sexist behavior that they're reproducing. Mm -hmm. It's it's holding that discomfort. I think it's 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 this, this place of being uncomfortable that we need to learn to sit with because that's the first step. That's def that's not that's really far away from where we want people to be in terms of taking action. But if we can push through that first gut visceral reaction of discomfort because you don't like the word white um or because you don't want to be told that there was colonialism in your country or you don't you don't want to own that we have privilege because people think when you say you have privilege that we're saying your life is perfect mm. and there nothing horrible that ever happened to you and that's not what people say you know like when when we say we hold privilege i hold a ton of priv privilege in different ways it's about accounting which barriers did i not have in my way to make it into this room i am um, i've heard the example used before it's an american sporting metaphor but for those will at least call it softball rather than baseball new zealanders understand softball 
that people, um, a lot of people who hit home runs don't acknowledge they actually started on third base. And I was talking to someone recently and thinking, you know, someone who, is, who, is, who has had a lot of uh, upset in their life and a lot of difficulties. It's like, obviously, to them, you're in the car park. You're not even on, you're not even coming up to bat yet. You know, if you're in the car park, you've got to get up to bat, hit the ball, and then get all the way around the bases. You know, some people who stand up and shout of their success, not acknowledging that they were actually already standing on third base the day they were born or, or for whatever other reason. Yeah, and I think that goes for a lot of things. I think as an as a person who now gets to speak on these issues, I also, I don't also start from the garage, right? There's, there's decades and generations of people who've done this work, whose shoulders people like me stand on, and yep. that's why we can do this work in this particular moment in time in these ways that we can do it. Um, so I think that also needs acknowledging because this is work that's been, it's been done for a really long time and. And if we, you know, just learned to look into our archives and listen to our elders, we'd also know these reiterations of these particular moments in time and what we can, what we can take from them, even what we can take from some of their failures. It, it, it kind of is a little bit sad though as well, because I think of that saying of, you know, if I've seen further, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, that means there's been giants before you doing this and we're still here. I mean, one could actually say it's worse. I mean, I, I don't want to actually put values on it because, you know, you, people will start straight away bring up the, the examples of owning one another back in the 1700s. But, you know, the, if, if we believe that quote and if there's already been giants and now it's people like you are able to stand on their shoulders, what the heck? What, what is, uh, that, feels, that feels a little deflating because there's already been giants and we're still here. I think it's we I think one of the one of the things that also gets said is, oh, why do they want so much? Right? Mm. I think I do think that there's there's definitely progress. I think there's there's definitely things that I can see about my can say about my life that wouldn't have been possible if I had been born in my in my mother's generation or in my grandmother's generation. So I think there's I do want to acknowledge that obviously like particularly legally, um, there's there's been a lot of improvement, mm -hmm. but at the same time, when you know, particularly around settlements or you know, racism and representation and participation, people often say, "Oh, but now it's reverse, right? Like now it's it's <laughs> it's really hard being a young white man in New Zealand." I actually heard that, um, and I think, okay, that's that's interesting. But again, you know, like the teacher in me says, "What's the purpose of that? You know, why do you say that? Because you feel like." having adjusted something, a tiny little fraction, makes it feel like you've had everything stripped away from you, right? I think those, again, like I think on an, on an educational level, those, those conversations are slightly different than on an action level. Um, so I feel like I, for me, juggling these two hats is hard sometimes because as an educator, I have a different approach yeah. than I have as, as, as a person who, who wants to see change in society, I think those are different and they maybe also have to be different. And I think I have a different kind of patience in the classroom or as an educator, I have a different form of patience mm. than I have as a person who's trying to see some of these issues changed. Um, my sister actually, and I think this is important, I don't know if she minds me saying that, but she said, you know, these conversations are happening in Germany. And she said, somebody literally said to her at work, but you have never experienced racism personally, have you? Wow. And I thought, wow, wow. Like, 
this is quite interesting. It's also like for me, I'm like, what failure on the parts of the people who are close to us to never ask us these questions. Don't ask us to, you know, pour out our trauma for you. I don't think that that's appropriate. But it's interesting to, to know that you might be working with somebody yeah. for years and they are completely unaware that your every date might look different from their everyday. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, the idea of the, um, and you've said it three times in this conversation, and I love it. I love the idea of, you know, um, what's the intent of that question? Why are you asking that question? What's behind that question or that statement? And I think it's something that um, I, I clicked onto quite a long time ago as well. M maybe because I was working as talkback, you can hear it. You can go, what's the reason that this person has this opinion? But to contextualize that for people, um, what I was just thinking as you were saying it is, you know, you're, you're uh, I can I can relate to this because I'm I'm a, I'm a bloke, but a bunch of boys in their twenties they have nicknames for each other, and sometimes those nicknames are quite derogatory. You know, like like guys just hanging out. Now, you know, two best mates can call each other X Y Z whatever, and it's fun and it's frivolous. But if a stranger uses that same name, there's a very different intent behind what that is. And something that someone, and I'm, and I'm not saying this to say about, you know, racial, racist terms or anything, but the intent behind calling someone uh, an expletive when you're their mate is very different behind the, 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 the being drunk at two o'clock in a, you know, in a, in, a, in a street outside a pub and having a stranger call you that same name. There's a very different intent, a very different purpose behind why you'd say that to that person. Yeah, for sure. I think um, for me, why I distinguish intent in terms of racism is because it's so much harder to have the conversation around intent because I can't, it's very hard to prove intent, you know? Sure. Uh, so as a person who, you know, like tries to like say, okay, if I want to hold somebody accountable, what can I work with? Intent mm -hmm. is hard to work with because it's so inherently subjective, but impact, you know, like we can impact is something that we can gather evidence for quite easily. And we can also say to people, well, despite your you know, best intentions, there is systemic impact. Yep. And I think it's a systemic nature that I'm really interested in. Because what I also find now that we're having these conversations, and I think it's just one more moment in which we're having these conversations, too many questions remain focused on individual stories. Mm -hmm. And I, there's power in individual story. There's power in narrative that helps us connect to other people. But at the same time, when we tell stories about racism over and over and over through getting somebody's personal testimony, we really forget to focus on this isn't about our individual experiences. It, this really is about a collective impact that many experience. Um, so while those are very important for us to document um, and they're important for us to talk about, if we only remain on the individual experience or how we get, you know, our Uncle Bob or, you know, our Auntie Susan to not say something offensive, why that's admirable, we need to have a conversation of how to fix the systems that aren't working for large crowds of people. You know, they aren't just not working for one or two. Um, they're creating collective harm and collective imp impact and collective injustice. And that's what I, you know, want to focus on. So I think this is where I often struggle. I'm like, I want to get the door open to have the conversation and the personal is always a really good way of doing that. Yeah. But then I also don't want to fall into the trap to tell my story over and over again or tell somebody else's story over and over again 
it's really about okay let's look at the system let's let's do the math you know like let's let's look at the data i really also wrote this because i think post in this pandemic time what i appreciated about being in this country in particular was how much focus was on the data mm-hmm. you know people understood let's put health public health experts in place let's listen to people who, under, who understand how disease works and that's how we run our politics right i thought that's really incredible similarly in new zealand i've i don't come across climate change deniers to the same extent that i come across climate change deniers particularly in the united states mm-hmm. um so for me there are areas in which we understand that we need to follow the evidence right and we we listen to certain certain ex, uh, experts and i'm not saying that science is always right because i think in terms of racism science has done a lot of harm but there are lots of anti-racist scholars there are legal scholars um environmental scholars political scientists sociologists have produced large bodies of like knowledge mm-hmm. that we demonstrate the evidence over and over again yet when it comes to racism we still think it's a matter of opinion mm-hmm. and we still think it's somehow some a personal issue that we need to talk talk about and why are we not putting why are we not putting our experts at the forefront of this conversations too and when i say experts i don't mean um you know five white politicians that don't have an understanding of institutional racism to come up with policy but yeah. let's draw on the evidence that's been created in the past and, and currently um and let's put the communities in those positions where they talk about what is the need you know what is the need for this impact to change or believe people mm-hmm. i think that's the other one like believe people we're yeah. somehow still at this debate like where i think some people are like is climate change human like is do humans have an impact on climate change that's a question for some people it's mm-hmm. not a question for me anymore mm-hmm. i've been convinced by the you know 90 what 8% of the scientists that kind of agree with that so i'm like why do we start the question on racism with do we believe this country is racist like you kind of catapult us back hundreds of years right. kind of we're starting from the wrong place So that so sounds that, that sounds a bit like how a science like not to use the same example but a scientist won't de- debate a flat earther because the, the the earth's not flat so a scientist doesn't want to give any credibility to the idea that might convert someone else out there that the earth might be flat. I find it so hilarious that you say that because that was actually something that was in the text oh. that I took out. Oh really? There you um, go. <laughs> it was um <laughs> because and i appreciate my my partner read it and said to me you should take that out because you want you're talking to a different audience like he's like you don't want to he's like you sound condescending take that out and i thought he's actually right okay. like, i think so my ego was you know getting ahead of me um but i i do think that's why i stuck with the climate change one because i i do think there there are ways in which we know we have come to accept certain forms of knowledge that aren't tied to our own expertise yeah, yeah, many yeah. of us will will recognize that climate change is a problem um even though we're not environmental scientists i am one of those people i'm not an environmental scientist my knowledge about the environment is very limited but i do trust the information that's presented to me but i always struggle when you know there is large scale data like reports that come out i think that was it was just last year that the the new zealand 
I have to like now think of the right title, but there was a report on institutional institutional racism, and that was a term in the report in the health sector, in the disability and health sector in New Zealand. Yep. Like th- people are doing amazing work, and they're putting it together in you know reports that aren't three hundred pages long for us to look at. Um, but why do we then go back and say, well, I can't look at your report. You have to first demonstrate to me that racism is real. Yeah, so I, th- like, I think the good example about the, the using the example of the um, climate change is now, I, let me preface this by saying I'm, I'm not saying that there's a, a, a debate, in other words, a, a valid debate, but there is still a debate around. There is still enough people who don't accept it that there is still conversation, whereas the flat earth one, there isn't really anyone who accepts that. So, so for example, what you're talking about is there are still people on the other side of that of that climate change conversation. So it's probably yeah, it's a it's a good example. Hey, we've talked about numerous times already about the the dishwasher example. So let's um let's share that because I really really think that brings for me. And maybe you're just going to educate me again here, hearing it from the author herself. But for me, it um, it really crystallizes this idea of what is racism as well, um, especially when you talk about institutional racism and for some people not really getting what that means. So can you give us that, uh, not even a nutshell, you're as long as you want. Tell us about your uh, dishwasher example and tell us about uh, the, the metaphor that that, that gives um, weight to. All right. So um, disclaimer, I my dishwasher metaphor was in there and then my friend um, said I needed to expand it and gave me some ideas on how to expand it. So I have to give um, the credit for coming up with that metaphor in the entirety also to my friend and colleague, Rebecca Taylor. Okay. So the dishwasher metaphor is, well, I started off by saying, you know, we have to make a distinction between intent and impact. And you can go into your friend's house and deliberately take a dish and then break it. Or you can be in your friend's house and you might be up here, you know, helping dry the dishes and you drop a plate, um, plate's broken, right? Like there's two differences, one's intended and one's not intended, but the outcome is in both instances, the plate is broken. Yeah. So then I go on to say, okay, let's assume you have, you buy a dishwasher and you, you know, wash your dishes in the dishwasher because you don't want to break any. Um, and you've realized that every now and again, um, you pull out a broken dish and you just assume it's because maybe that dish was chipped or it was already damaged before. Um, and that's why at the end of the cycle, when you open the dishwasher, you find broken dishes. So you continue to use your dishwasher because you trust that your dishwasher will do the job that it's supposed to do, which is wash dishes. Um, and then you constantly surprise that <laughs> every now and again, you open the dishwasher and the plate is broken. Um, and then I say, well, if you continue to use a dishwasher that's faulty at some point, you know, you have to see your own responsibility in the matter. So it is on you to fix that broken dishwasher or, you know, even to replace it. So if the dishwasher is our justice system mm-hmm. and we know our justice system doesn't work for everybody, it's not worked in the way that you put your dishes in it and then you open the door and all dishes come out um, fully clean and non broken. Right? We can't just say, oh, it's a dishwasher, but there's a responsibility we have. This dishwasher was designed to wash our dishes, but if it's not doing it the way it needs to do it, then it's on us to fix the dishwasher. Mm. Um, and I know it's a very simplistic way of imagining um, a system, but I, I, needed to make it, I needed to make it 
something that moved away from the individual and focused on a system. Look, I, I, I think it might be simplistic, but I think that's the genius of it. I mean, my dish, I have a dishwasher upstairs. Uh, one of the first things I bought when I bought this house, because there wasn't one here, and if my dishwasher is breaking the plates, then I have some responsibility for a broken plate because it's my dishwasher. I, I, I have ownership in that dishwasher. I guess the thing, the, 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 the expansion from this metaphor, which will be interesting to get on you, is I can make a change with the dishwasher metaphor. I can buy a new dishwasher. Making a change in the justice system, very different situation because me as a single person, individual person, an owner of a dishwasher, far more difficult to change a justice system. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, it's not that we as one individual change a justice system. I think we as individual, first of all, recognize that our system might not be working. Mm -hmm. And that has, and that kind of brings me to the third point in the, in the text that has a lot to do with how we oppose and protest things that aren't working. When people say people have very interesting ideas about protests and as a peace and conflict scholar, mm -hmm. I feel like that's also something that I, that I have come to study. I've been lucky to study, um, in history, we've never been given rights because we politely asked for them. Yeah. Right. So what I think is something that people can relate to in New Zealand and don't disagree with is that women have the right to vote. And I said, you know, how did women get the right to vote? Um, did we just say, hey, by the way, we'd like the right to vote. And people were like, sure, here you go. Like easy peasy, have a cup of tea. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's in this, in this particular context is about under, if, if you know the dishwasher is faulty, mm -hmm. well, then you need to acknowledge that it is. And you might, you need to now also be part of the people who are speaking up and asking for accountability. When we ask for a policy change, it's not that everyday regular citizens are then tasked to write the new policy or a new legislation we express our discontent or our concerns and then we this is our democracy where we have people who are then tasked to come up with these solutions for us but in a way that reflects popular demand as well so if people are saying the system isn't working and it's more of us who are saying the system isn't working or it's not working the way it's meant to. You know, I think like I'm open for people to say it's, it needs reform or it needs complete change. I think I can see nuance in those different positions, but um, it's first recognizing. I think the recognition part is is the first one, but then you also have to follow up on it. Cause I, I think it's not enough to say, oh yeah, what's happening is really terrible. Yeah. Oh, I agree that it's really terrible. And I'm like, okay. And now what, you know? And on that point, so let, of, on that point of now what, you have this. Yeah. So for people who are listening who can't see this, we're looking at a, a shot. In fact, we can probably even put a bit of volume into it as well. So this is in the background. Uh, we are looking at more protests in Washington D.C. Uh, they've certainly marched from the White House to wherever they are now, and to uh, <laughs> just reiterate the the metaphor. Uh, these guys are acknowledging that all of their dishwashers are causing issues to their plates and they're, they're in their thousands. So I'm answering my own question a little bit that I as an individual can change my dishwasher. But, you know, right there we can see all those people together saying we need our... Uh, can we expand this metaphor and say 
uh, governmental dishwasher to be changed, our big countrywide dishwasher to be changed or something because of the plates that are being broken in it? Yeah, I think with this particular example, I think we need to spell it out. I think people want to abolish the police. People do not. People have a very clear demand. I think it's about racism in general, but this particular um, case really, really revealed the the police brutality that black people in in the U.S., not only in the U.S., as we've seen, um, experience, right? And for us to imagine alternatives, and alternatives do exist. So I think there's there's a lot of things that can be done now. Like I think this this particular demand around these protests is opening up lots of conversations for very many different areas. Mm-hmm. Right, we can't fix everything in one day, but I think it's about getting started to take inventory. And we have people who've already taken inventory. There's people who've provided us the evidence. Now the question is, do we want to take it seriously? Right. Do we want? And again, like it kind of relates back to climate change too. Yeah. Do we want to? <laughs> we we have the evidence, and even when we acknowledge the evidence, what are we actually going to do about it? Um, and I don't want to shift focus from yeah. Black Lives Matter to climate change, but I do think I see some similarities in the ways in which we as the public relate to the information presented to us. I, you said before, and I'm not, I'm not expecting us to get political for New Zealand politics in this, but you talked before about you know, five white guys on the front bench of it, and I just thought, oh, that's the National Party. But I was thinking, um, <laughs> what do you think that there can be steps taken maybe symbolically as well as so like for example the Paris Accord you know for the climate change situation do you envisage there could be something that by countries signing on to some kind of agreement to stamp out racism agreement to stamp out institutional racism is that actually something that you could see happening during that parallel to the climate change situation we have those laws um maybe they aren't good enough. So Berlin just passed um, for, you know, the regional law, an, an anti-discrimination law, which is quite mm-hmm. um, really, really important. And I think that is something that for the German context could be, you know, leading by example for other states to follow. Um, there's obviously UN, um, what are they called? Um, resolutions? Yeah, they're not resolutions, they're... It's a different word, but I can't think of it now. So we have guidelines, right? Like most con- most democratic countries, uh, it's not legal to discriminate based on race. Yeah. It's just that we don't necessarily have very in-depth, complex legislation um, that secures how that could be done, right? Or, w- or ways that are intersectional, ways that, it, that recognizes that, it, that sometimes it might not just be race, it might not be gender in and of itself, it might be the intersection of those two categories together that might result discrimination in discrimination for certain populations. Do we need, I guess, tighter or, or more conversations in the legal system? I think we could definitely have those. I think we need to have more conversations around that. I'm not a legal scholar, so yeah. I don't want to say... Um, what that should look like or what there is here as well, because I wouldn't know because I'm not a legal scholar. But I know from an activist point of view, the law is the place we go to. Like the law, if we if the law fails us, then we can point to a hole in the law and say, well, this is where it failed us. Um, but I don't think it's a one size, you know, like 
cookie cutter solution or we fix the law everything else will be fixed but, I think but, this is but one of the big problems that I've just well maybe maybe I can't say I've just identified I don't know I'm a, I'm a moron sitting in Dunedin in a wooden box but um but it seems like one of the big problems could be we have laws to work against to stop discrimination yet if we're talking about institutional racism it's the government who make the laws who are then breaking those laws what the crap do we do then it's not just the government that reproduces institutional discrimination. If you I guess I'm thinking. Work, about, oh, sorry. I guess I'm I thinking mean, about, for example, the justice system. For example, the yeah. courts. That, that, those kinds of institutional racism. I mean, uh, there's no there's no law that tells us disproportionately sentence Maori. Yeah. That is not a law, right? That that is something that happens because people do it over and over and over and over again, and then you have a collective outcome. Or, or sentencing Maori harsher than sending, you know, Pakia counterparts. Yeah. Um, I think that's one area where it happens. But I think, yeah, I don't quite know how to tackle that in the legal system. But for example, as an educator, I always say, like, it's, you know, fix your problem where you're at. Mm-hmm. Um, let's look at what people look like in academic institutions. Yeah. Right. So I think we our impact has also a lot to do with who we seek to bring up in institutions. What do institutions um, just, I guess, you know, what's the habitus that an institution reproduces, yeah. right? So if you if we look at what were universities like, let's say 80 years ago, how many women were in, were in universities 80 years ago? Um, and how many women are in universities today? And has that made an impact on how many women enroll and succeed and finish in university. Same right. can be said for schools, yeah. right? But I think those questions also matter. Or in our organizations, it doesn't have to be a big university. If you're an NGO that's interested in public health matters, but mm-hmm. you don't have um, people who can speak to the needs and, and rights of Maori, well, then that's an issue. Right. And it's also not enough to bring one person and expect that one person can carry the burden of that job because you get really unpopular. It's a very unpopular position to be in when you say, oh, something racist happened because people are often too quick to make you the problem instead of looking at the problem. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, like this this trope of the, the feminist killjoy, Sarah Ahmed calls it, you know, like you point at a problem and then you become the problem. Right. Um, and I think for me, it's about those conversations too. Or, you know, like break it down in your circle of friends and your family table. Somebody says something, whose job is it to disrupt that narrative? Mm-hmm. Right? Are you are we just expecting the same people to do it? Because that's very hard. Um, and then also, what does that do to us? Like, is the messenger then to blame for the message? When you talked before about Uncle Bob, Uncle Bob saying something inappropriate, um, you know, obviously Uncle Bob changing his ways is one thing, but you know, figuring out the justice system and the court system, for example, would make a hugely you know, bigger impact on the on the overall issue. But that doesn't mean we don't want Uncle Bob to still kind of get educated and figure out what is and isn't appropriate. Um, part of your uh, part of your piece, let me bring it up again here. Hang on a sec. Part of your piece here uh, also talks about the three questions, right? The three questions you ask. And um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is, is particularly as we said at the start, but there are, I'm watching online, there are people joining us as we go, is um, that you wrote this piece that would seem in part because of your well-meaning white friends who wanted to know what was going on in the US. 
And and one of your questions is talking about um, endorsing violent protest. I thought you were a person of peace. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of commentary in the last couple of days, as I'm sure many of us have. Um, the difference between the protest and the looting, or the difference between the peaceful protest and the aggressive protest. And um, I, I guess I just wonder, I'd give you some space to talk to that, as a, I mean, a, a doctor of peace, so to speak, a racism, anti-racism, a doctorate coming out of the um, Otago University, um, where that sits and how it is. Because when I read that, I'm, I'm, I've got a friend, Adrian Leeson, who's part of a group that took down the Waihopai spy base. They, um, it was, what was that, a decade ago or so? And they took the scythe to the spy base and they took it down. And they ended up being found not guilty of a crime. And I, and I, and I should have researched this, but I, I haven't. Based on the idea that the 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 violence the violence or the the action that they took uh, served a greater good maybe in their mind or maybe that's what was proven and the example that was given was um, if a house is on fire and someone's inside the house I can commit an act of violence by kicking the door down to go in and help so I'm committing a crime of breaking and entering I'm committing a crime of kicking the door in but it serves a greater good so therefore it's acceptable violence quote unquote and i was just wondering um is there a difference between the looting going on because a lot of people are saying that's not the protesters is there a difference between the violence and any of the protests going on and if you could speak to that for us as well it would be great um where to start on that one i think with protest um, the critiques that often that I hear is, oh, but why wouldn't you choose other means before you protest? So before it even comes to looting and so on. Um, and, you know, as, as a scholar of these things, I always say, well, you know, the, in a democracy, we have different channels to, to express dissent, mm -hmm. right? So let's, because these, this is happening in a democratic country, we're living in a democratic country, because nobody minds when people rebel in dictatorships, because then it's, you know, for freedom and democracy. But if we do the same, it's like, oh, but you should use other channels. So there's plenty of other channels we use. Um, and, you know, people seek justice, like, so, so somebody beats you up, a cop tries to beat you up, well, I'm sure most people will pursue that and and try to get justice and say that was not just um so and those systems fail or you try to go um to get you know like media um to to report on it or whatever it is that you do there's all these steps that are ahead of people organizing out in the street it's not that we at the most minute um conflict that we experience you know, call for for a demonstration. So those those issues happened before. And simultaneously to protests, you have things like petitions, people calling on their politicians, um, community grassroots event, events, all of these things happen alongside protest. But we might not see that because of course, when it happens in another country, um, the way media also works, it has to give us the most important information. Mm -hmm. um, and that happens to always focus on the violence. When it comes to particularly Black Lives Matter, I think the, the racial tropes that that exists for how black people, particularly black men, but not exclusively black men are described, you can see them resurface. You know, it's violent, it's aggressive, it's, um, you know, so I find like a lot of the things, the way we talk about these issues is also completely loaded with racial like pre-assumptions that we have mm -hmm. that we have maybe internalized and don't really realize that we that we have 
So people say, oh, you know, protesters got violent. And I said, it's, I, I find it quite interesting that we see SWAT teams, which are not very new, like they've been around for about, you know, three decades now. So it wasn't always that our police were militarized. Yeah. Um, and unarmed protesters, and yes, some people might throw stones, but usually like it's very rare. So you have unarmed civilians, civilians, and somehow we think that violence happens on one side. And the main reason for that is that we have so inherently internalized that the state is allowed the use of force. So when people say excessive use of force, this police officer used excessive use of force, we use the word excessive because use of force is allowed yeah, right. The police is allowed the use of force. Yeah. The military is allowed the use of force. It only bothers us when it's excessive, mm. right? And then, of course, what becomes the question of excessive? So I think there is there's a cognitive issue that I see here is that people conflate the violence of people with the violence of armed institutions right. and how, how we're coming to accept, we're coming to accept that we can now use um, militarized police on internal populations because we're very okay using armed, you know, military against populations that aren't our own, which is a whole different issue. Yeah. Um, but that's a process that has happened over time, also in the U.S. Right. I don't have a lot of my statistics here because, um, but this process of when the police was gradually militarized in the U.S. can also be traced, and who they use them for. Right. Like we have seen, you know, seeing tanks roll down the street or the how the curfew was imposed in Minneapolis. So why do we think that in any way that is normal? Why do we come to accept that as, as something appropriate? Right. So I think for me, um, I say there's hundreds of thousands of people out on the street, some marching, some dancing, some protesting. Um, and then you see the pictures of, of lootings and you're like, oh, this has to stop. I'm like, you know what has to stop? What has to stop is this is this invisible violence that's invisible to the privileged people mm. um, that is deadly, that is deadly every day, um, but that many don't see. Well, right? the, so the, think, well, the other thing to also remember, and I think right. you, I think I think you mentioned it in your pieces, when you are talking, a lot of people will be thinking, "Yep, arm police." Yep, I've seen them on the steps of the the Lincoln Memorial. Um, but you mentioned in your piece the Uruwera raids. You know, so we we we're not oblivious to this here in New Zealand. It's not like all the dawn raids back in the seventies for Pacific Island peoples in in Auckland primarily. So, um, and I always think now that I'm getting freaking old. Um, I always think that you know, thirty years ago was yesterday, and and it does feel that way. So so you know, those those raids in Auckland were happening yesterday, as far as I'm concerned. And as far, I'm sure as, as as far as a seven year old uh, Samoan person living in New Zealand who experienced them, they, they were yesterday. So I, I think it's important, and 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 for all of us, me included, to just remember at this point we're not just talking about America, we're talking about what we see in in New Zealand as well. I've just had a message from someone on Facebook. I'm trying to have a look at it, who's watching us right now, saying that Stuart Nash this morning, uh, it's from Matt, Stuart Matt Nash this morning on stuff is denying there's institutional racism in the New Zealand police. Um, yeah. So, you, you know, it's it's this is this is a worldwide conversation. I, I mean, I did refer to him in, in the piece yeah. too. And again, like, I mean, I always say, let's assume, let's assume everybody is saying this from the best place in their hearts. Um, but let's look at the impact, right? Like if there is 
this, this notion of unconscious bias is extremely dangerous. I know it was developed because we needed more ways in, um, to do anti-racist work, but there was a real danger of narrowing, like watering it down because mm. unconscious bias is something we all have for different things. Um, but it brings it down only to the, uh, to the individual and then it becomes an individual problem to fix. Right. But we need to look at how in, how these individual forms of bias, um, reproduce collective behavior and yeah. it's the collective behavior we have to address and not just, Oh, but we, we did a workshop for people and now they're culturally more sensitive or whatever it is that we say. And I said, well, let's look at the impact though. Has the impact of your institution changed? Have you actually changed any systems within your institution? Have you actually changed any collective behavior within your institution? So I think it's very quick. And then also we conflate all forms of discrimination as one. All discrimination, I think it's terrible. Nobody should be discriminated, but we can't just say, oh, here is this anti-bias workshop where you learn about all forms of discrimination right. and miraculously we're all you know, culturally sensitive and safe and what doesn't work like that. i think it's it's this is also why i didn't want to shorten my piece because i really refuse to to think that this is something that fits in a tweet yeah and that we can fix with a tweet like this requires us to actually do substantial reading substantial conversations and it's it's, it's it requires stamina you know for people who remember the dawn raids or people were raided in their bids you mm. know like police went into houses when people were sleeping um, to look for so-called overstayers. So when we, these, these experiences are passed down, that trauma is also passed down, you know, like it's, it's not just, oh, it happened 30 years ago and we're all good now. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I mean, sometimes I've been, been talking about um, that experience. Uh, like for example, the, the, the house, the two houses burning, well, the one house burning and the one house not, the example we used earlier. And I think now apply that to a person and multiply by by about 10,000 because it's not just the house that they're on their street. It's 400 years of, you know, oppression building up to that point. And the, one of the things that frustrates me, and it's the same with the, the treaty here in New Zealand, or, for example, um, you know, from the outside looking in, issues of race in America, is in America they kind of go, well, you know, there's been a black president, so we're all sorted sort of thing. And in New Zealand, similar sorts of thoughts around, you know, well, there's lots of Māori in Parliament now, there's no need for Māori seats, etc. But it's like, I don't, I think like hundreds and hundreds of years of negative impact, we can't just wipe that away in 30 or 40 years. Like we talked about 30 years being yesterday. Martin Luther King was in the 60s. So if say, let's say 50 years ago, that was yesterday compared to 400 years of oppression. We can't just go, oh, we're done. And, and not only are we done, but can we call it even? We're, we're, we're good, eh? Let's just call it even now. Whereas it feels like the people who are being, you know, if I, if I, if I wrong someone um, for whatever reason, it's sort of um, up to them when, I've, when they've forgiven me. You know, when when I've when I've been able to figure out what I need to do and say and be to put me back in their good graces, so to speak. Why would that be any different for a group of people who have been oppressed for hundreds, if not thousands, of years, depending on, you know, what um what part of the world we look at? What dis what distinguishes this context from others though is that this country has the treaty. Mm. You know, and at one of the conferences that Moana Jackson spoke at, he said, 
treaties aren't settled, they're honored. And I think that's really important for wow. this context to, to, to really repeat and repeat and repeat. It's not a settlement process. It's just come and uphold this treaty that you have and work with it and listen to the people who are working with it. I think, you know, constitutional transformation, the Matsukimai, which maybe we should pop up a link to, to that as well on the Facebook page. What would a constitution look like that was based on fertility? Right. I think there is if we're having transnational conversations, maybe some of some of our answers can also come from specific contexts. And again, that's not my place to do. I just I just want to say that there are their approaches here and there's their real answers here that we can work with. Mm -hmm. um, and that we also have an I think an obligation to to honor and uphold. So I think for me, it's, yeah, let's have a conversation about Black Lives Matter and anti-Blackness within our own communities, but not let's not forget from where we speak and from where we are tasked to, to do the, to do the mahi, like we have to do the work. We have to do the work here too. Yeah. Um, I, I sent you some of the stuff that I've been talking about in the last week. So we kind of got on the same page for where we were going to be before we started. And one of the things I sent you was a tweet I put out. I'm sorry, I tried to solve things in a tweet. I know it was the wrong thing to do now. Um, um, but it was a, the quote from John Gilmore, and I'll just read it out um, again for people who don't know it. Um, Violence is always the last option, but, uh, but if that time comes, it is the only option. Violence is always the last option, but if that time comes, it's the only option. My sort of um, thoughts around that were um, when you when you're a group of people and you keep you, you you keep getting told, you know, violence is the last option. Violence is the last option. Just you know, do it a different way. Violence is the last. And then at some point, you come to the last option. And when you're looking at things like, uh, you know, I know I've brought this up several times, but for people who are listening, we're going back to the you know, shots in um, Washington, D.C., of protests still going on. This feels very different from anything before. I mean, I, I was too young to read it. Well, I just remember Rodney King, like just. Not not that I was too young, but I, you know, when you're a teenager, your focuses are elsewhere sort of thing. But I do remember that era. Um, this feels very different. Do you think or do you get the feeling that this has sort of got to that last option for a lot of people, especially in America, and that Black Lives Matter movement. Sorry, I just um, got distracted for a second. Um, I remember Rodney King also very, very, very weirdly. I was very young, but we all—I think we all should all remember Ferguson. Yeah. Um, that was long ago, yeah. and I think there was a, a large work that was done by people in and around Ferguson is also what's made this possible, right? Um. I saw that quote and I, I don't know if it's me that I somehow still hold on to this peace person inside of me. Um, I don't know if violence is, becomes, is the last resort and then it's the only resort because the way police brutality operates, violence is the first resort, Yeah. right? Like for, for certain institutions, it's not the last resort. Like we are managed by violence. Right. If we if we look at, you know, housing discrimination, educational discrimination, the criminal justice system. Violence isn't the last resort. Right. Like we some populations are always managed with with severe degrees of violence. 
It's just that when they, when they respond, when they make the violence visible, when we make the violence visible that we experience, then people look at us and say, ooh, that's violent. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I think that's what we need to distinguish. I think we need to come to a point where we, where we learn to see, where we learn to see that violence that many experience as a form of violence and not just being killed on camera. That is not the only type of violence that happens. I think that's, you know, one of the most extreme ways, ways for us to document it, but it shouldn't take that. You know, we should be able to look at, you look, look around ourselves and, and, and understand that there is violence at play. So I think this is why we make this distinction between structural forms of violence and direct forms of violence. But I think, yeah, we, we're con continuously operating towards the normalization of the violence of the state which we need to be mindful of. Like as, as citizens, we have an obligation to, to question these forms of violence. And this is also when, you know, New Zealand wants to arm its police. Be wary, you know? And also when people say, well, we needed to do that because we had a shooting. You had a shooting in Christchurch, um, but yet you're arming your police in South Auckland. Yeah. It doesn't take a genius to see <laughs> that, you know, like there's some disconnect there. Um, you know, but I think it's, yeah, for me, the violence is already there. Like, I, I don't, I mean, there's so many different examples that I could give also from this country. But when we think about what happened last year in Christchurch and that particular, that particular community, those particular mosques were saying we had incidences before people left, you know, things in front of the mosque or were, you know, writing threat letters or putting fake bombs up. We were reporting this to the police, but somehow not just this country, other countries do, to look at Muslim populations as suspicious by default and spend more time investigating into these communities and investigating into the communities that want to harm. Yeah. Right? So we spend so much time looking for potential terrorists that come out of these whatever minority groups instead of focusing on real white supremacist terrorist groups that operate globally. And that's a real threat that we need to take seriously. It's not a fringe, right? Um, and it's normalized by everybody in the middle who's like, well, I don't know. I'm not sure if this is really terrible. I don't know mm -hmm. if I can say something. And it's like, okay, but what's the, what is the normalization that goes with that position that you're saying, I don't know, should I say something or should I not say something? I'm just trying to think of it. I, I can't, don't know it off the off the top of my head. I'm going to look it up as I'm speaking to you, which is dangerous me trying to do two things at once. Um, it was Martin Luther King's quote about the most dangerous people are the moderates. Something like yeah. that. Do you know that he quote? Says, he says that it's a letter from Birmingham jail. Yeah. He's in Birmingham and he, and he writes a letter to the leaders of the white churches who are supportive of the civil rights movement. And, and he is urged by them to change the tactics and say, now is, this is not the time. Um, and then he write, writes back and says that, that he's now come to realize that it's not the KKK member, but it's actually the white moderate that is, far more dangerous to the movement. I teach that letter in every single class of mine. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block and the stride towards freedom is not the Ku Klux Klan, but the white moderate who is more uh, devoted to order than to justice. That's terrifying. I, I, that, I find that to be a, a terrifying quote. Well, that's what people also say. People say we need to maintain the peace. We need to uphold the rule of law, which is like I pick those out as a peace scholar and I, I always say, interesting, whose order and yeah. whose rule of law and whose peace? 
I mean, who's living at peace, you know, when people are... <laughs> So I think and that's interesting. Like um, there's some interesting work that's done on the history of police as well, particularly in, in, the, in the, the early colonies. Um, so what was the police's job? What was it supposed to do? Who was it supposed to keep at, you know, order? And who was tasked to follow the orders of whom? I mm. think those are some of the questions we need to have as well. It's a little bit like the, the, it's the winners who write the history. You know whose history? It's like the people who win the wars write the history, and then same sort of thing. Um, the whole the whole violence quote about when it when the time comes violent. That's the only quote. Uh, it's the only it's the only option. Um, your response was talking quite a bit about uh, that we already have, let's say, institutional violence as a first option for the state. It seems that that quote is maybe more, at least with me, resonates more towards you know citizens that if they're constantly having violence. Um, committed on them in various forms and they're being told don't respond with violence at some stage they will and and according to according to that John uh, Gilmore quote when they do it's the it's the only option so from from the other side of that conversation not from the state side do you see this as being the time where in America in particular because we haven't talked about this yet but you've just basically come back from teaching in America and you were teaching in a state that was heavily um, DePaul University is in Indiana, which I'm, I'm sure Indiana is a, is a fairly liberal area. But as you can see, Indiana is very Trump in general, and he got 50, 56.5% of the vote. So you probably have an insight based on that as well, more than many. Um, is that from a, um, from a citizen side of things, not the, not the uh, government side of things, in America in particular, uh, is this the, is this, are they at their last option? I think what people are doing in the U.S., and I'm not based in the U.S. right now, but I actually see a lot of nonviolence. I see far more nonviolence than I see nonviolence and violence on parts of people who are protesting. So I think that is worthwhile saying. I think yep. this is largely, this is, I mean, to a large degree, really nonviolent and peaceful, even though like, people might, you know, not understand what I mean when I say peaceful. I don't mean that peaceful means that it's just, you know, flowers and, you know, hug the tree kind of thing. But it's not that people are, you know, arming themselves and just randomly engaging in acts of violence. I don't think that that's the case. Um, as for Indiana, so yeah, Indiana is a very, very red state. And I learned a lot. I feel like I don't want to do a disservice to the experience that I took from it. But it's the Midwest of America is not something that a lot of people kind of understand if unless you've lived there. And I think that goes for a lot of Americans too. People who live on either side of the coast don't really know what, you know, the Midwest or what that part of America sounds like and feels like. I met some really, really lovely, kind people mm -hmm. who had some like rather disturbing ideas about, you know, like when it comes to racism and justice and so forth, but they're also simultaneously ex extremely, extremely marginalized and disenfranchised. So there's a lot of poverty in those areas too. So it was really insightful to, to be in that context, but it was also scary. It was really scary when I was there because I thought, wow, like this man is going to get reelected. Mm -hmm. um, I had never lived in a place where people carry guns openly. So you go, you know, to Walmart and you walk past somebody who's holding a gun to me. That is terrifying. Yeah. Um, but also because of what I look like, I always was very conscious about, you know, where I walked by myself and, and, and just having 
you know, black friends in Indiana and to, to, to think about what does that mean for them? What does that mean for their children? Um, so I think those are some, you know, like real fears, but nonetheless, in all of those places, you have folks of color living, you know, it's mm -hmm. not like you can take yourself out of these bubbles and, you know, put yourself somewhere where you don't experience um, racial discrimination. So I think, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't want to, like, I think this whole conversation around race war is really dangerous. I think what this is, is that people have reached a point where they're ready to go out into the street to ask for change. Yeah. And it has a lot to do with police brutality and racism in the United States, but it also has a lot to do with so much else that this administration has done, um, which, you know, to say it mildly, all of the policies are very racially biased. And that's, I think, is a very polite way. Oh, that's generous. Of, um, so I think it's it's a combination. It's a combination of all of those things. Also intensified, I think, by the COVID-19 pandemic mm -hmm. and how that disproportionately impacted marginalized, maybe communities made marginal. I think that's far more accurate because we're not naturally marginalized. There's a process of making us vulnerable. Um, so I think there's a lot of things coming together and the US has a huge audience. So I think that's also a biggest difference. So when I talk to internal conversations with peace scholars who are all for nonviolence, I always say nonviolence needs an audience, which is a quote by Arundhati Roy. If the world isn't watching, you know, nobody will care about your plight. Um, so I think what one of the advantages is that the eyes of the world are on the U.S. at the moment, which yeah. gives movement that which gives civil movements so much more power because people are people are looking what's happening. And that, of course, it's not the case for a lot of other places that might experience, um, you know, large scale systemic injustice. Yeah. So. No, I don't necessarily think this is a this is a time where people are going to like become violent, but I think it's a time where people have had enough, and rightfully so, and their anger is justified, and their their frustration and their rage is justified too, and it's it's about time. I mean, we're asking for very little. People are just asking to for people to listen first of all, you know, and not to ignore. Yeah, and let's just, I mean, all of it has been said. One of the reasons I don't want to write these things, I'm like, well, people have said that 10 years ago five years ago, 20 years ago, 30 <laughs> years ago. Um, but somehow I'm reminded now by people who read and write back to me and they're like, oh, thank you for writing this. And I realize, oh, okay, maybe I take for granted what I'm exposed to. I was, so, um, I've been looking at the, the a lot of the news like we all have. And it, I mean, I don't know if this is true or not, but my impression is that with some of the stuff that was going on in America with the looting is that wasn't connected necessarily to the, to the protest there was a separate entity going on there and people who were blaming the looting on the protesters i said to someone the other day so you you have a you have a party you have a 30th birthday party at your house you ask 20 of your friends to come they all come a couple of them bring their partners that you don't really know so well fine a couple of them bring a couple of hangers on that you don't know at all fine so there's 50 people at the party um one of those hangers on who you don't know at all does something horrific let's say gets drunk and beats one up, up one of the other party goers are you as the party organizer responsible for that person who has beaten up your guest you don't know them you didn't invite them but they turned up that's sort of to me how it feels like a lot of the looters when you look at what's going on is that for want of a uh less flippant term there's other people who have turned up to this party opportunistically 
doing things that aren't necessarily related to the party, uh, aka the protest. Do you think that's a fair sort of assumption? Or do you think that the looting yeah, has I been driven by the protesters? Who in, in, in protest is always the radical, what is it called? The radical flank, I think is what nonviolent theory calls it. Um, there's always a radical flank. And then some, sometimes that radical flank might be connected to the movement. And, but then there's also people who are clearly not yeah. related to it at all and and look for you know causing trouble because what better way of undermining a powerful peaceful movement than by you know like causing destruction um but having said that i think there is this this obsession with the dip like that we shouldn't destroy public property mm-hmm. versus the destruction of human life um is one that we need to expose like yes obviously like ideally we could ideally people could get heard um without having to make like a lot of noise even like ideally you should be heard in your pain by just saying this isn't right um but when people say oh public property the damage to, to public property and one of the stories that i really really appreciated was um south asian restaurant owners in minneapolis whose restaurant was set on fire and he was interviewed by the news and his daughter got on social media and she said, my, my father is saying, let my restaurant burn. Wow. Um, he's like, you know, we've got insurance. Um, we want justice. We want, we want to see justice served. And I thought, no, yes, nobody's restaurant should, you know, be set on fire, but people, but even people within those contexts understand, you know, that you can't compare the damage to property, often insured property, um, to to the loss of human life yeah and it's not just one life even though you know we're saying this is happening around the case of george floyd there's been a lot of other cases Bianca taylor being one of them who i mentioned um there's so many names like if we can't even write a text with all of the names of people who've died at the hands of police uh, just this year um so i think let's have that conversation too again what's the purpose yeah. So you worried about public property or are you trying to say public property is more important than this man's life? I've brought up the quote that you've got in your article, which has been turned into a fairly well-spread meme now around the place, as Randall Telfer so aptly tweeted, rather than saying, quote, it is horrible that an innocent black man was killed, but the destruction of our property has to stop. We need to rephrase our approach and perspective by stating it is horrible that property is being destroyed, but the killing of innocent black people has to stop. So, and that I, I've seen that a dozen times by various people in the last week. So, yeah, echoes what you're saying. Hey, um, I think I've got one other question for you, and I've been really trying to figure out how to ask this question in a respectful way. But I guess I'm, I'm because I've done a lot of kind of conversations with people and talk back and that sort of thing, I've heard a bunch of the sort of common things people say. And one of the things that's common is people talk about when it talks about the, the justice system and, for for example, the over-representation of Māori being in prison compared to the makeup of the population. I've been trying to think of a way to ask this question in a way that is um, acknowledging lots of people think this without kind of saying <laughs> necessarily, I think this. And I was thinking, where is the, where is the, um, where is the evidence or the line 
that kind of leans away from statistics and leans towards racism. And the example I've kind of come up with is actually the COVID, the COVID crisis. I mean, because yeah. and the reason is 55% of the people who passed away were from Christchurch. So a disproportionate yeah. number of people who passed away were from Christchurch. Does that mean Christchurch people are more susceptible to this thing? No, it doesn't. Um, but it's sort of the – so I, I know this is not necessarily coming out like I did, but I guess what I'm saying is you hear people say, well, you know, if 14% of the population commit 90% of the crime, of course there's going to be more of them in prison. How do we speak to that example? And if someone's listening or watching right now who does believe that, what's the response? That's a hard question for me because it, it I think it's it's these questions are hard when they when they affect you personally because I find it like I, I hear that one so often. I right. find that really offensive, particularly like you know having a partner who's Maori. I think it's a, it's an offensive question even if you don't have a, a person that you love that you know is affected by it. but mm -hmm. especially if you have somebody who you know like that's their daily life. Um, there's also, evidence on how for particularly young Maori men, it's not the moment in front of the judge that makes the difference. It's the first point of contact and right. young brown men. And that I think would include also um, Pacifica, or I, I guess actually, honestly, also women um, are far more likely to be stopped or pulled up by the police. And right. that's where the, that's where the difference happens. So if you're more likely to be stopped or checked, then all of these other steps, you being taken to the station, possibly ending up in front of a judge, um, those are far more likely. Right. Right. Um, so I think, and we don't have enough of that information that starts at the, at the, at the very beginning. Right. Um, and we don't contrast, I mean, I guess, some journalists do and scholars do and activists do, they contrast these cases, very, very similar cases for very similar crimes. Mm -hmm. And then one outcome is, you know, X and the other one is, or you get a slap on the wrist because your future um, is, you know, it, it might ruin your future. And one of the cases I have in that one was the girl who stabbed somebody in Christchurch. Um, and I pulled it up because I thought, wow, stabbing is quite full on. Yeah. Um, you know, stabbing somebody is not just, you know, it's not a, it's not a drug offense. Um, so I was like, I have, you know, very strong feelings that we should not be stabbing each other. Um, and I thought, and I, and when you look at what the judge then says is, oh my God, like her future, her future, what could happen to her? She's a young person, like all her life ahead of her. What about all these? What about all these young and Poly, like young Maori and Polynesians? Do they not have a life ahead of them? Do they not have a future ahead of them? And that again is the question of worthiness. Is because deep down we just don't think that some people's lives are worth as much, right? Like if people say in the 1960s in the U.S. I am a man, is because that is a question. That is a question people have: Are you or are you not? Um, are you a human? Are you not a human? Um, so when people say our lives matter now, if people, black people say our lives matter is because in effect, it looks like they don't because we don't uphold their lives like that. So and if we look at the criminal justice system here, it does want to, to protect our people and make sure that they consider your life circumstances and where you are like our our laws built like that it has to consider was this your first time where are you coming mm -hmm. from were there other aspects that might have influenced your actions it's supposed to do that but somehow 
somehow we still think that harsher punishments are justified for somebody who overfished versus somebody who beats up a cop, you know? Um, yeah. And aren't those lives that are ruined, aren't like we lock people up and we don't only we don't only take their freedom, like putting people in jail has a huge impact on the family members of the people who go to prison. Um, so there's lots of lives that are affected by these choices. Um, so yeah, when people say, oh, for some reason, these populations are just naturally more criminal or more naturally more violent. That to me is a very old school racist argument because nobody is naturally anything. Well, I'm sorry to bring up a question that offends you so so drastically. <laughs> but you know what? I was thinking because you did state that you get that a lot. I, I really wanted to ask that question, as I said, because I think there are lots of people who need to hear that answer. That was the that was that was the point of it. Um, look, it's good. It's, 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 it gets me angry in ways yeah. that other questions don't make me angry. Well, you know, it's it's yeah. I remember, and look, I'm not I'm not prepared to share what they were exactly because I, I haven't got the I haven't done the research for it but I remember being a talkback host and I remember having cases for some reason Taranaki springs to mind where two people uh, were convicted of committing the same crime like they did it together and the Maori boy got time and the European boy got let off and of course everyone was saying oh you know one of them's done 10 crimes and when you delve into it they both basically had the same background and like they, they did it together and they got different sentences. It was, I'm just like, it's, there's no question. There's just no question. Which then brings me back to that question, I guess, of, of change. You know, you're standing on the shoulders of giants, seeing further the most. Uh, we, we want, if we want this to change, is it that the first and foremost that has to happen is those, um, that first interaction, the, the being pulled over. Is it, is it like the broken windows policy? Is it the little things that have to change first, which will flow on into the justice system? Or does there need to be a top-down change, whereas sentencing and that sort of thing needs to change? How, where does it start? Both. Both. I think it's, and it needs to be simultaneous. Some things have to be top-down and some things have to be bottom-up. Um, I do think that large-scale policy change makes a huge difference. Um, for example, if this was a matter of, you know, like giving legal rights, and then obviously it has to start on top and mm -hmm. then people have to follow. Because when women were given the right to vote, it didn't mean that the vast majority of the population was in favor of that. They just had to deal with it. Um, so I think it's a, it has to happen on multiple levels at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm um, just going to flick over here as we come to a close in this conversation, which has been, I, I almost followed the John Oliver principle. I don't know if you watch John Oliver, but when he sometimes has a very difficult topic to talk about, he goes, if we get through this, I'll show you a I'll show you a basket of baby sloths at the end, kind of a little reward to get through the conversation. I didn't do it, but I did have that thought. But one of the things I want to jump back to, which I think has been good to show all the way through, people who are listening, we're looking at a new uh, NBC News feed right now, who has shown this is now in New York City actually, uh, as we've flicked backwards and forwards occasionally during this hour and a half chat we've been having, uh, we've seen Atlanta, we've seen now New York, we saw Washington. And these are happening in America as we live stream. Oh, there you go. That's literally on East Broadway and Clinton Street. Oh, ironic that's on Clinton Street, isn't it? Um, as we're talking right now. So these are going on all over America, literally as we um, as we chat. And um, all those things that you've been talking about, like my question about a single person changing a dishwasher, but how does that change? Those, those are the people. These are the people in America who are fighting for that to be done right now. And it's... 
happening en masse and it seems to be, well, you know, uh, I think it was the, uh, who knows what's going to happen in November, but I think it was the Alaskan Republican senator came out yesterday saying she didn't know if she could vote for Trump, you know, and there's this, who knows, who knows if this will make the change that America needs. But um, on the Trump presidency, I've been saying for quite a, a while, there's a French philosopher who had the who had the saying that a country gets the government they deserve and it feels like that in fact I heard Joe Rogan say it yesterday he said I was listening to a podcast with the, uh, um, the guys who do the Hill TV show the online show and he, he basically said Trump's perfect for this time and he wasn't meaning he's good for this time he's meaning this is the exact time you'd have some lunatic um, you know reality TV star in charge this is this is when it would happen in the movie script sort of thing and maybe this is the start of sounds I sound so patronizing what I'm about to say I don't mean it to but maybe this is that or, or part of the way of you know America deserving someone better than him and something better than what they've got right now yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've, I know that quote very well. It's just really hard when you live in a place where you are outnumbered and then you pay the price for other people's no. bigotry, you know? Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a catchy, funny one, but it is real, like there's real violence attached for other people. Um, just to bring it back to here, I think, you know, like yep. it's time for people also to think about, I don't think elections are the only thing that we have to do and the only way we exercise political agency. I think they're one way, whether or not um, people agree with that. I think it's one way, you know, like use it to do other things as well. Um, New Zealand hasn't confirmed that police will be armed. So, you know, people head on to the right websites and, and write to your um, you know, like right to the police, right to the politicians, vote in line with, you know, what you think should happen out on our streets. So I think those are also questions. And also, you know, just because America is America, well, it's the US, America is the continent, um, is this global superpower doesn't mean that other countries can't condemn the things that happen there. And I think there's in an international political sphere, there's some something that we can do around, you know, naming and shaming that is also something that we can demand in our local contexts. Um, so just look around you and see who in the public realm is actually speaking up and saying, you know, police brutality isn't okay. And also look out who's staying silent on the issue because mm. that also speaks. So yeah, I think it's bringing it back. I think it's our solidarity should drive us locally. Like we, we express solidarity to learn locally. So we can act, you know, like there's a global logic, but I think we can do a lot more putting pressure on our societies locally. Yeah, cool. Hey, look, if people want to read uh, your piece, let's uh, let's bring it up again so people can see it if they come across it. Doo -doo, like that and like that and scroll to the top. If people want to read your piece, which is on, uh, is it medium.com? Medium.com, Dear New Zealand, Why Solidarity, Anti-Racism and Black Lives Matter. Um they can obviously just go find it exactly. It says 13 minutes. Um, as as my little dyslexic brain struggled with that this morning, it's I, it's, it's worth getting through and it's worth giving time to. And if others out, of you out there like me are dyslexic, you read it out loud. That's the way to do it. <laughs> you read it out loud and you speak it out loud and then you get to hear the words at the same time and it's powerful and everyone should check it out. And there is a link on our Facebook page as well, which is facebook.com forward slash D-O-C-N-Z. Uh, for you American friends, D-O-C-N-Z, just because that's so weird. To, that's still so weird to me, but but there you go. Hey, um, Makhdiz Azamandi, Dr. Makhdiz Azamandi, 
Thank you for giving us some time this morning. It's been unreal. I really enjoyed this. This is my hundredth podcast, and I was gonna, I was going like, let's get like some super celebrity and I make it big. I am so happy and so excited that this one is my hundredth. I'll look back at my thousandth and go, man, that hundredth was amazing. So I'm so 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 stoked that you came on board. If people want to um, read your stuff, head to our Facebook page. Anything else? You want to tell people or can tell people if they want to find out stuff about you, where to find you, where to go, uh, anything like that? No, I mean, I'm not, there's not much. I mean, I'm just, you know, academics aren't like very well-read people usually. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, like that that link, hopefully I'll add some more things to it. I, You know, like people can find me on the university website and yeah, I'll try to put up more resources. I just, you know, didn't know how much I could include and should include. But if that's something people want, um, you know, holla. I'll probably holla. link it to some really cool activists that work locally. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff out there. That's awesome. Hey, thank you for joining us. It's been amazing. And um, when you get back down to the mainland, to the beautiful South Island, when you're visiting uh, Dunedin from, you know, Second best Christchurch, Dunedin's obviously number one. Uh, you'll have to come again and we'll chat again because this has been outstanding. Thank you so much. I'll definitely come visit when I'm in Dunedin. All right, team, that's us done and dusted. The Department of Conversation brought to you by Stratus, the most affordable alternative to smoking. Designed for people looking for a less harmful alternative to smoking, the Stratus is a cost-effective device for anyone looking to step away from old habits. Check out vaporium.nz for more details about that. Uh, Dr. Maktis Azamande was our guest today and is the 100th episode, as you just heard. And I couldn't think of a better guest to have. I couldn't think of a more important conversation to have at this time in our lives. And um, I hope you'd consider sharing this one around more so than maybe any others. If you've listened to this podcast, which obviously you are, then feel free as well to head to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash D-O-C-N-Z. That's where you will find Maktiz's, um article if you haven't read it yet. And also uh, over the next day or so, we're going to be cutting some clips out of this, which will be easy to share around the place and just give some people some insight into what maybe is really going on, especially those people that you see posting and saying and talking about how all lives matter and white lives matter. Because um, I guess the the summation from this conversation is actually not to, it's a little bit like a duh, we, we know all lives matter, but this is not the time for all the reasons you just heard in this podcast. So yeah, share this one around. Um, be great to get any feedback you've got about it as well feel free to connect with us via the facebook page and uh until we see you next time with episode 101 who's it going to be well check in with the facebook page to find out catch you next time hooroo